Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Really excited today to be joined by Beth Rudden, who is the CEO and chairwoman of a company called Bast AI. Beth was the closing keynote. She brought down the house in a good way at the end of the Global Talent Summit that I attended at the Gallup headquarters in Washington, D.C., Shout out to Kelly Ryan Bailey and Anna Rolls who ran that session. But welcome to Beth, who is an AI ethicist and has a lot of interesting ideas about human factors and the future of work, the future of everything. Beth, welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you for having me. We always like to start with your origin story and however you want to tell it. Catch us up a little bit on how you got to this point in your professional life. Sure. Depends on how far you back you want to go, but definitely did the whole Gertle Escherbach. I was a musician for a while and then learned a lot about languages and then did my undergrad in classics. So tons of Greek and Latin and dead languages and a dig in Italy where I was uh, digging up Etruscan artifacts. And I can't tell you how cool it was to like blow through 15th century Lombardy to get down to 5th century BC kind of stuff. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. But I think that the archaeology really gave me a perspective on, you know, data and artifacts and understanding how much you really need to do to correlate to what you know and the the system of record that we know, especially in archaeology, it's incredibly small. Imagine finding a mad magazine, you know, 300 years from now and recreating our entire society on that mad magazine, which yeah. that in itself is a dated reference. Went to my graduate work in Denver. I was an undergrad in Florida and then Italy and then Denver to do for real applied archaeology, one of the very few programs that they had, ended up doing my thesis on the Ludlow tent colony because in America, we either have very old stuff or we have very new stuff. But the Ludlow tent colony was a massacre that happened in 1914 where the Colorado National Guard was called in on behalf of the company. And we kind of know better now that, you know, Companies and corporations cannot activate our National Guard or our armory in order to come in. And and what was going on is there were many miners that were striking and their entire families were immigrants from all of the various countries. And they were striking and they were in this tent colony in Mm. Ludlow. And Ludlow is right outside of Trinidad, which is the sex change capital of the world. (laughs) Lots of interesting things going on in Southern Colorado. But why I loved it was that it was just this intersection of, you know, immigrants where you would find like, you know, jam jars from Sweden or you would find, you know, things from China or, you know, all of this in this very small space in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And the Colorado Guard massacred all of these people, but they had built tunnels under the the tents. And so lots of very interesting ways to kind of reproduce and ground penetrating radar and understanding what we can do with, you know, history and, and lots of things to, again, correlate to be able to put together the story, as well as lots and lots of demographic distributions and statistical processing, yeah. <laughs> things that we applied. So I was using SPSS, which is Statistical Processing for the Social Sciences. And it's a program that I was using at the time on a mainframe. This was even before I then sold out and did some dot-com work and then eventually landed at IBM. 
Right. And the dot-com work was interesting because in the early 2000s, they had these books that we would get, not e-readers or any digital format at all. And they would give me a book and say, you are debugging Java when you land in this client site. So it was a great way to learn. I would never have traded that in a million years, but... Being a consultant at that time where we didn't have Stack Overflow, we didn't have Google, we didn't yeah. have any digital format, you really had to do a lot of the work to understand not only the culture of your client that you were landing at, but you know how to apply that knowledge and be able to, to program sufficiently to be able to debug whatever they were doing. Yeah. And then I, I got into IBM. I grew up in the managed services division known as GTS or Global Technology Services. And the Global Technology Services was managed services, strategic outsourcing. And, you know, I grew up in the Boulder plant, which was IBM's largest data center. Mm -hmm. So we had to build like an entire nuclear power plant in order to be able to fund the data center within Colorado. Mm. And it's, it's set on a beautiful campus where most people ride to work and it was great. And we had a lot of people who had transferred from India to Boulder and they became all my friends. And we built this amazing set of reporting and information system services that we would add as icing on the cake to the managed services. My average deal was about $100 million. Wow. I've been able to do a $2, two billion deal in my lifetime. And being in that room where it happened was, you know, that, that type of experience is yeah. like... I guess you're picking up the check for, for this podcast. That... <laughs> um, no, I was the delivery person. <laughs> so I didn't even know that the salespeople got paid points. Oh, my this. goodness. <laughs> I can't we started. So I, I was... You know, very technical. It was right around 2012 where the Harvard Business Review came out and said, hey, data scientist is going to be the sexiest job of the 21st century. Yeah. And so I was the trained social scientist using, you know, statistics and SPSS, which was a product mm -hmm. that IBM eventually acquired. The thing that I had is that I had a fantastic mathematician and a fantastic statistician. And they did not want to become an architect. I was a pleaser. So I, of course, became the information architect. Yeah. And what I learned was that, you know, the business in 2012, they didn't understand what a data engineer was, what a data architect was, yeah. DevOps, CICD, like all yeah. of these things that we are talking about now in order to have microservices implementation of models where you flow data over them because you have the code architecture to, you know, create the input and the output of that model as an API that many people can access. Yeah. We knew none of that at that point. And the company was like, well, these are just delivery people. We can offshore them. <laughs> and I'm like, no, that's somebody who can write business logic or ETL. You know, they, they are really, really capable. We can't let them go. So we created the data science profession in IBM and it took us like six years to get it, you know, through corporate, but then it's now accredited through open group. Anybody can do it. And when I grew up to become the acting chief data officer of GTS, this $34 billion organization, I would have people, I would send out because I used AI to look at the propensity of what people could do. And I was more just sending lots and lots of invitations out. And I would get back from people in India or people in Hungary or people in different parts of the world. 
And they're like, am I allowed to do this data science profession? Mm. And I'm like, yeah, you can. Like, all you need to do is follow it. And it's the only experience-based profession. So you have to be able to write and answer questions that is reviewed by people who are already certified. And all of us have gotten certified and recertified every year to show that you understand a full cycle implementation of the data science project using the CRISP-DM, which is the methodology that came with SPSS. And the reason that we chose CRISP-DM is it starts with what's your business outcome? What's your problem <laughs> that you want to solve? And, you know, that's what I see in data science today is that, you know, we're asking humans to go and like take a bunch of tests and, and, and practice and, and be able to do the test. But I'm like, take the class until you're ready to put your hands on the keyboard and do the thing instead of taking the the class to pass the test to get right. certified mm -hmm. because your ability to apply the information is you know it's related to this theory that i have about developers where you can you know copy and paste somebody else's code then you start with a blank piece of paper and you write your own <laughs> <laughs> then maybe you graduate to being able to read other people's code and understand how you can contribute to somebody yeah. else's. Mm -hmm. That's a lot harder needed change in our organizational structure where people are valuing more well-performing teams as opposed to individual contribution, yeah. which is a major problem. Mm -hmm. But then we performed a pretty massive workforce transformation. 2019, we had acquired Red Hat, but GTS and that managed services division spun off as a $20 billion corporation, which is now called Kindrel. Mm. We had about 16 months. We had 110,000 humans in 175 countries, and we upskilled and reskilled 23,000 of them. Uh -huh. And we got them Red Hat certifications, data science certifications. These are hard things, proctored exams. <laughs> yeah, this is at, a, is at an IBM, right? Because IBM's operating IBM. at this massive yes. scale. Yes. Yes, yes. exactly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to do something at that type of scale mm -hmm. was just, it was fantastic. So we sort of performed this workforce transformation, Kendrill spun off, and then I went into consulting for about mm -hmm. two years. Right. And then sister got sick. And when my sister got sick, especially right at COVID and all of these things that hit at once, I was reevaluating why I had all of these skills that I was not using to help humanity as opposed to doing what I was doing for IBM, which was making, you know, making a difference, but not enough of what I, I really believe that I can in mm -hmm. order to be able to generate software that helps people understand and grow their own AI. Mm. And part of this idea comes from the fact that I love to grow things, you know, teams built like yeah. plants. I, yeah, For our <laughs> listeners, I can see uh, plants behind Beth. She is growing them as well. They looks like some sunflowers and a nice uh, floor <laughs> plant of some kind, which I can't quite tell. Maybe a spider plant, perhaps. Yes, and then ultimately, you've just founded Fast AI so that you can bring something different to the table and run your own organization, still thinking very much about the role of humans and how humans interact with artificial intelligence. I, I was mentioning to you the idea of being AI literate, the idea that yep. humans should have some basic competence, be exploratory. You had some slides using Midjourney, you know, mm -hmm. OpenAI Labs now has some ways to create 
AI yep. by by working with that as a human. Can you talk a little more about the the human sure. AI connection and how that relates to what you're doing at Bast? Most of my career in IBM, I was never technical enough. Becoming a distinguished engineer, you're submitting yourself to a lot of scrutiny. So you're you're all of everything that you're doing is sort of drilled into and looked at. When I went into consulting, I was way too technical. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, too much, not enough, whatever. And what what I've been formulating is, you know, a really deep understanding of information processing and how people process data and information is in need of a massive upgrade. Mm -hmm. So I went through and I said, I asked all my peers, I'm like, what is data? And nobody could really give me a consistent answer. So I developed my own and I'm, you know, based on my archaeological upbringing, data is an artifact of human behavior. And once you start to understand that that artifact is completely subjective to whoever is viewing that artifact in what context based on what they know in their own mental model to correlate yeah. and build in the story of why did that artifact sit there at that time? It's in the eye of the beholder. That's right. Or, or in the eye of the creator. And so, you know, data is generated by human beings directly or by human beings creating systems mm -hmm. that might out a print line of whether somebody used a product or used a feature in a product or installed a product or delivered a product or deployed a product or sold a product, da 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 da. So once you really understand the context, that's what I want people to start to think about in relation to AI, because AI for the most part, machine learning and any of the, the statistics or Bayesian sets of, of AI, the, the understanding that people don't have is that algorithms are only probably correct some of the time. Yeah. And we, we, we don't think in, you know, shout out to Annie Duke, who wrote a fantastic book called Thinking in Bets. We do not think in bets. But if we did, we would understand that even if an algorithm is 80% correct, if it's saying whether somebody should get a, in my sister's case, you know, a, a surgery or not, it's based on the data that was used to train the model. Yeah. And even if she was completely positive, like it, it was a, a positive case where she was there, that, that could be what 20% looks like. Right. And we don't have the test, retest reliability that we need in order to make data science truly replicable from a scientific, there, there's far more rigor is yeah. really where I'm going, right, that right. needs to be into this. So what I am doing with Fast AI and what I learned from sitting in lots of hospitals with my sister is that the systems that the human beings, the doctors, the nurses, the systems that are surrounding them are not really allowing them to practice their craft in the way that they're learning. In, a, in an organization, if you have a bad sales leader that beats up on your sales team and they overcommit to what they need to deliver to the organization and they don't deliver because they don't have a sense of psychological safety or whatever, they say, oh yeah, I've got a hundred million in the pipe and then they go off and they go find another job, whatever, that causes, that's a causal relationship for a cost function that an organization has to pull a trigger on in order to let people go. Yeah. And that is what's happening over and over and over and over again. So me being me, I took all of my sister's data, which is long involved and put it together and started showing people. 
And the reaction that I got was, oh my gosh, I wish I could have a conversation with this data and I wish I could interrogate this data. And that's where I'm building out conversational AI that can help people understand how they know what they know, but also be able to start to interpret things in a different way because you can't be curious about something that you don't know about. So you can introduce this aspect of creativity, which is why I use mid-journey and I use all of these AI creative arts, because I believe strongly that if you're going to take a class on AI, you should be using AI in the class to take the class. Yeah. And we don't have enough examples. Why? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. wh- why, why are people wanting to talk about the work, write about the work, think about the work, have meetings about the work? <laughs> Instead of just doing the thing. Yeah. And so I'm like, how do we use AI to augment ourselves? And what does the world look like when we're all augmented by AI and we understand how it functions as opposed to AI being controlled by, you know, a couple corporations mm-hmm. that is being used to make decisions about us that we don't even understand the test, retest reliability of that's what 20% looks like. Right. Or even the the ramifications of decisions the humans are making about the AI if the humans don't really understand, you know, the on the data. one hand, on the one hand, how the AI works, yeah, exactly yep. the underlying data, but also how to work effectively with AI to make good decisions. You did talk yep. a little bit about data as an artifact of human experience. Mm-hmm. To me, that leads naturally to human-centered AI and the idea that, you know, maybe speaking back to your your history as a, a social scientist, that AI needs to be designed in kind of like a human context, that there are ethical mm-hmm. considerations to weigh in. You were also talking a little bit about human factors. Can you catch us up a little on how the human relates to what's yep. emerging around AI, AI ethics and innovation? So, and, and I'm leading here because there's so much negative you know, negative dystopia versions. But what we forget is we have a lot of positive examples as well. And, you know, 1935, the very first robot was used to tell fortunes at the World's Fair. AI is something that can be made delightful. And so when we're really looking at, and this is, again, my experience of, I ran reporting and analytics and data science teams and what I know to be true is the minute that you expose the data that is used, somebody will say, oh, that's actually not, that, yeah. that's not the right data set. Gar- garbage in, garbage out, right? Garbage in. Well, but, but worse than that is that people make the assumption, and I always say any, any mathematical process has three steps, and this is from Conrad Wolfram's TED Talk, who is a fantastic educator. And he says, you know, you start in the real world with a question, you go from the real world to the mathematical world and perform a calculation, and then you go from mathematical world to the real world and see if you've answered the question. Mm -hmm. Most data people suck at one and three Mm. because they jump in with whatever data they have on hand to try to perform a calculation, but they don't understand the question and they certainly don't know if they answered the question. And so I think that to get more humans involved, we have to get different different types of people. We need journalists. We need construction workers. We need, <laughs> we need everyone involved in the creation of AI. So my 
wish is for everyone to have access to software that allows them to create. And, and the type of AI that I'm generating is using ontologies. And ontology is actually a branch of philosophy that studies the nature of reality based on the language that you use. Yeah. And we, I do think, rightly or wrongly, but we sort of forgot that the World Wide Web, want, you know, what people wanted and Minsky and, and many of the people who worked on the very first beginnings of the World Wide Web, they were looking at a semantic web. And the semantics are as dense, you know, really understanding, you know, Noam Chomsky from a linguistics perspective yeah. is like learning linear algebra. You have very dense, dense understanding of the linguistics. And we're just beginning. <laughs> it's so new to humans. Linguistics is 1955, you right. know, barely 75 years old, right? Mm -hmm. What are we thinking that we know anything about that? Chemistry as a discipline, same time frame. So we are still cave drying. The internet is barely 40 years old. Right, right. <laughs> we don't know enough. And so I, I, I love him for the record. And I think he's an amazing machine learning teacher and you know human being. But when Andrew Ng said machine learning can be done on a graphical processing unit, and can process the data a hundred times faster. It was like, I'm going to date myself here. Tim, the tool man, Taylor. And people are like, I can use big, huge, powerful, you know, models to, or big, huge, powerful machines to run a bunch of data through a bunch of statistical models, add yep. as many layers as I possibly can, use all the electricity in New York City for one month right. to create a language model to do what? Send an email? Right. So <laughs> I think that if we're going to use that much power and that much energy, we need to find better uses of these large language models that are just, you know, I call it a cheese grater. There's other versions of it, but it's just taking data. I'm going to be crass a little bit, but I think it's lazy to have, you know, your data scientists shove a bunch of data sets in, into neural nets or machine learning models and have it guess at the features. Right. And part of what the work that I do with ontological NLP is all the way back to, you know, stemming, lambdization, tokenization, really pre-processing all of the text to understand what is this text saying. And if you have a high degree of understanding, then you can actually really pare down the type of models that you need. Mm -hmm. And ontological structures are based on how the human brain works. Right. It, it, human, human brains actually do work off of a hierarchy or a taxonomical reference, mm -hmm. not off of a linear model. Right. So it's almost like we, there's a, there's like some firmware built into our brains that... Well, well, that's right. It's And because we're all pre-association is, mm -hmm. is, is really a, a good understanding of it and an ontology or an OWL like mm. formally is it's a graph model. Mm. So you've gone from SQL or SQL, which is really based on set theory in order to query information and data and to not only SQL, <laughs> which you create data dumps and data lakes and data reservoirs and lots of yeah. things that can carry this large unstructured data. And I think that, you know, most of us have understood that we need to evolve to graph models where you have 
both entities as well as the relationships between the entities. Mm -hmm. And that's where I'm going to get back to with AI is many of us, you know, who have been in this industry really working on the front line of delivery, of the delivery of the products and the tools and the, you know, the things that are going out there, what one human being needs, what information you need at any given time to take the right action yeah. that, that, that is aligned to your right outcome, that is an unsolved problem. Mm -hmm. And there's so many people trying to solve those problems, but their intent is cost reduction right. or headcount takeout. Mm. And when your intent is to automate the human being, there is a resistance. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you have to think about it as like, what is the relationship that this human being has with the AI right. in order to get them to adopt it so that you can have functional change management? And I always look at it as like, how do we automate the robot out of the human? Mm. So what are you doing as a repeatable task? How do I use AI to automate that part of you right. so that you can be liberated to think about, you know, way different things because you now have the brain cells and the freedom. It's sort of like when the washing machine <laughs> came, think about how much time we now get yeah. back because mm -hmm. we have the ability to not have to go down to the river and wash our clothes. Right. But it takes a bit of a leap of faith and it takes a little bit of letting go of what we've gotten comfortable with. Some of us are a little more future facing, kind of leaning into that. But but I think other folks might be a little more scared, frankly, and or lack the the growth mindset, feel the yep. imposter syndrome kick in. We're getting close yep. to time here, Beth. So I do want to be conscious of that. There's certainly plenty that you have to share <laughs> on this topic in terms of the depth of your expertise. If folks were able to stick with us this long and they're trying to keep up, do you have any like words of advice or takeaways for people if they want to think about, I know AI is happening. I understand there's all yeah. this stuff going on, but it just feels like too much to wrap my head around. Do you have any thoughts or advice for folks who might be thinking that these days? Try it. Go out to mid journey. Try it. Like it, it's on discord or if you're not on Discord, you know, try a Dolly. There's now, if you go to the app store, there's a hundred text editors, which are just, you know, fill in the blank kind of thing. But there, try it. And, and, you know, just like a science fiction movie or a really good story, have a willing suspension of disbelief. And when you are using it and trying it yourself, I, I find that people have a very different viewpoint of it. Yeah. And also, I do find if you have like a buddy, if you're not doing it alone, like you just have yes. to, to kind of, yes. but getting back to the human part, because like yes. it does feel like the human is more the motivational, the mm -hmm. the kind of non-verbal, non-cognitive part of what it means for us to kind of lean into whoever we're going to become. Like we do need, I love that. it's a social exercise, right? It is the social exercise. And I, I would love to talk about that more because I think that what we create socially as a collective is genius. Mm. What what individuals do to contribute to that is only part of the story. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be telling, you know, the whole story about what we could do together mm. as a collective. That's perfect. Get past the individual, think about more than just the 
single human, think about co collections of humans, and then think about how they can be augmented mm -hmm. by AI and technology. Right. My wheels are turning. Thank you for spinning us up. Beth Rudden is the CEO and chairwoman of Best AI. Thanks so much for joining us on today's episode. Thanks, Michael. And for our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed this as much as I did. I'm going to include some show notes to help you understand some of the things that Beth was referencing. Really interesting stuff. She's definitely worth a follow on Twitter and wherever else you might find her. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. <music>